It is good to see everybody today. Uh, it's, a, it's a great day. I, this is my favorite weather right now, like 70s, low 80s. I'm loving it with the AC working in the room, all good things. Some of you don't know who is talking to you today uh, because I shaved the beard. The beard is gone. Man, the lady that I go to every morning for like the past five years to get breakfast didn't even recognize me. <laughs> I was trying to strike up conversation as usual, and she was just giving me cold shoulder, and I'm like, man, what is going on? And then I realized the beard is gone. She forgot who I am. That's all right. Heather smacked me a few times singing, an intruder was in the house. But uh, it's good to see everybody. Uh, and Mark just left, but give it up for Mark. We have him filling in today. Well, there he is. What's up, Mark? Thank you for coming and being with us today. He goes to... I mean, we consider a sister church, Bridge Church. He's the worship leader there. While Jess is out, he's uh, leading for us today. Uh, But we are in our series on mission. We are four weeks in, loving this. Uh, We're in chapter, uh, in the book of Luke, chapter 5. And we've been spending some time in Luke the past few weeks. Uh, Just, there's so much about Jesus and learning about his mission. Uh, Today, the title is Eating with Sinners. And... We're going to go through one of the uh, great meals that Jesus has. You've been around long enough. You know that I love talking about meals that Jesus has in the Bible and how it is biblical to eat with people. Uh, So, yes, we did a lot of eating yesterday uh, with one of our dinner parties. A lot of fun. Make sure if you're not on the app, shameless plug, get on there so you know about what's going on. Um, But we've learned so far what God's heart is. What our mission is together with God and what we have been learning since then is how this plays out. What does the practical look like for us? Last week, we saw that it plays out by sowing gospel seeds everywhere we go. This week, we're going to look at how it plays out over meals with the story of Levi, the tax collector in Luke chapter 5. So you can read along with me. We only have one screen today. Uh, Last week we had zero screens, so we're getting back. Maybe next week we'll have two screens. We'll see. Uh, But you can read along with me, Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. If you don't know, tax collectors are the worst in this context. Nobody likes them. Just like today, nobody likes the IRS. (laughs) Sitting at the tax booth, that's where Levi was, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. And also he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and a piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. 
If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. If we remember, I opened up the start of this series. We read Luke 4, where Jesus stands up in a synagogue or a place like this, where a lot of Jewish people went to um, listen to the word and grow. And he declares this from the book of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news To the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he starts out with that proclamation. And then we see over the next few chapters, he begins to do that right in chapter five in Luke before this happens. Jesus cleanses a leper, someone who is seen as unclean and not allowed to be in normal society. Jesus cleanses him so that he no longer has leprosy and can join into society. Good news to this leper. Right after that, right before Jesus eats with Levi, it says that he goes and he heals a paralytic man, somebody who could not walk for years that everybody knew. Jesus tells him, stand up and walk, and he walks. Then right after that, Jesus then sits down and has dinner with a tax collector and all his sinner friends. And this is the story that we get to focus on today. See, Jesus was very serious about his mission, and we see him playing that out in story and conversation after conversation. It starts out in this talk in verse 27 that Jesus is walking by and he sees Levi. But he doesn't just see him. If you look at what that word means, we see it in the book of Acts a few times, and it's kind of like he stares intently at them. He observes them. He focuses on them intently, probably Jesus looking in to the depths of his heart. And then Jesus, after he sees him, after he looks at him, after he observes him, he sees him in his tax book. He knows he's a traitor. He knows that tax collectors are greedy, sinful people, somebody that the society of the Jewish people hated them. They were traitors to their own people because they were used by the Roman Empire to enforce tax codes that were heavy and unfair and many times they went over and above to fill their own pockets so jesus says follow me and then levi responds to the call of jesus in two ways the first way he responds is he leaves everything it's crazy because many scholars believe that this is the first encounter levi ever had with jesus Right? Here's this man walking by. He's probably heard of him before. But Jesus looks at this man and he says, follow me. And Levi probably not knowing Jesus from anybody else or Jesus not knowing Levi, but looking at his heart and seeing something, Levi says that he left everything. Now, some people have tried to minimize this by saying, you know what? Levi was one of the 12 disciples. He became one of the 12 apostles. And so somebody like that, obviously, they're going to have a special calling. They're going to leave everybody. But at this time, Jesus had not chosen his 12 yet. He was going around to people and creating disciples. And it wasn't something special for the 12 that we put on this pedestal that leave everything. If we learn about Jesus and his call to his disciples, to all people who follow him, it is a call 
to leave everything. And so Levi responds, and he leaves everything. He says yes to Jesus, a tax collector, a traitor to his people, a sinner in the eyes of the religious elite. And what does leaving everything mean for Levi? It means leaving your desires. It means leaving your lordship. We find this more and more as Jesus teaches that you are saying, I am no longer Lord over my life. I am no longer king over my decisions. I am no longer in charge of what I do. But I leave all of that behind so that I can now follow Jesus. Your right to self-rule and to self-govern is no longer there. You are leaving your following of self or others in all areas and you follow Jesus. Now Levi, that's the first way he responds. He leaves everything, but then there's a second way that he responds to Jesus. He throws a party. This is what I love. When he decides to follow Jesus, it is not just a leaving of everything, but there is a celebration that ensues here. It says what? That Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Part of Levi's repentance, and we see that part of repentance with Jesus, is not just a leaving and not just a mourning, but it is also a celebration. We read about this in Luke 15. What happens when a lost sheep is found? There is a party that happens in heaven that God invites us into with him. It says there is more joy in heaven over the, nine, over the one who is lost that is found than the 99 who are righteous. And we see this in Jesus' ministry constantly as people follow him and leave what they have. After that, repentance is marked with a sign of celebration. Now for this celebration, what does Levi do? He gets all the sinners, all the tax collectors, all of the, it says he invited the tax collectors and other to be at his house. In Luke 14, later on in Luke, he describes what the other is, and I love this. So when we are thinking about a feast and a celebration to have, and we want to think of who can I invite, Luke 14 says, invite your friends and invite the other, and this is who the other is. He said, Also to the man who had invited him. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And this reminds me, of last week when Jesus sends out his 12 disciples and he says, take no tunic, don't accept any money, don't accept anything other than a roof over your head because what? This gospel is free. So in this case, when you're throwing a party, don't invite people that you can expect favors from later on. Don't invite people that you can rack up your your, your credibility or your equity with them so that you can call on that favor in the future. He says, invite people that can never repay you. The Pharisees get mad at this. These people, man. And when they get mad at this, they come at Jesus and they have two objections towards him. And their first objection is this. 
that he's eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. For them, this was unthinkable. It says in verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes and the scribes, they grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, they were part of the religious elite. Pharisee men separated one. So they prided themselves in having a righteousness that was above everybody else that could not be around anybody else. And what happened was back then when you sat and you ate a meal with them, what you were broadcasting to the world is compatibility with that person. You were saying we are, we are on the same page. And so the Pharisees looked at what Jesus was doing, sitting and eating with sinners, with the other, with the tax collectors, with the traders. And they're saying, how could you sit with these people and eat with them and feast with them? Don't you know that you are incompatible with them? See, what the Pharisees did is they took a good thing following the law, following following God and being obedient to God, and they turned it into a bad thing, which meant not caring for their neighbor. Which when Jesus said, what are the two greatest commandments, he quoted Deuteronomy, that you love God and you love your neighbor. The Pharisees really loved following the law and they prided themselves in following the law and they found them they they made a religious elite sector of their people of people who would dedicate their lives to following the law but in trying to do something that was good following and being obedient to God they had turned it into something bad and stopped caring about their neighbor when the Pharisees give their objections Jesus responds to both objections the same way. First, he makes an observation. And then second, he makes a pronouncement. So to this first objection, he makes his first observation. And we see that in verse 31. Jesus says this. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So what's Jesus's observation? Very fairly simple one. If you are sick, you call a doctor. If you are not sick, you don't need a doctor. Observation, straightforward, factual, pretty true. From this observation, he makes a pronouncement in verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says this, I have not come for the healthy people. I came for those who are sick, or more aptly put, those who acknowledge that they are sick. Jesus restates his mission here that we keep hearing over and over and over again. He keeps on sharing what he's here to do. He keeps on sharing why he came to earth. It's very clear, very specific. He came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus, in his time here in his ministry on earth, was on mission. And we read about his mission that he invites us to this mission, that it now becomes our mission. He came to heal. He came to bring liberation. He came with good news. So the Pharisees give him this. They're like, okay, that makes sense. But let me give you another objection. In verse 33, they say, and after this, they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. It's funny. I hope the 
People say that about the disciples in this church. They eat and drink. I think they do, probably. We like eating and drinking together. See, what happened is we we have to understand what their objection here is. In the Old Testament, when you repented of something, when you turned away from an old life, that was followed by usually two things, prayer and fasting. And so in the Pharisees' minds, a sign of repentance, a sign of turning away, a sign of truly saying no to their former life and following God was then entering into a time of fasting and prayer. This was normal life. This was how you repented. This is the outward sign of repentance in somebody's life. So they asked Jesus, but hold up. All right, we get it that you didn't come for the people that are healthy. That makes sense. You're a doctor. You're not going to the heal people. You don't need to come to us. We're good. We got it all together. But all right, you went to them, but they're not showing any of the signs that they're actually repenting. So if you're calling these people to repentance, Jesus, you're doing it all wrong because they're not fasting and they're not praying. They're eating and drinking. They're celebrating. We're not supposed to have fun when we follow you. We're not supposed to have a good time. What is this? Don't you know religion is boring and awful? Don't you know that we're not supposed to be reclining at the table with one another? So Jesus responds again in these two ways. He makes an observation, and then he makes a pronouncement. He makes this observation in verse 34. It says, And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Basically, he says, Who fasts when they go to a wedding? Now, wedding back then, I think, is closest to my Indian friends in the room. They have a wedding. It was like a several-day affair. You had fun, right? One of the first miracles that Jesus does in John is he turns water into wine when the wine ran out at the wedding. Come on, Jesus knows how to party and to have fun. And so Jesus says, when you have a wedding and you're a wedding guest, do people fast when you're at the wedding? This is just his observation. No. And if someone is fasting at a wedding, it's just everybody feels sorry for the sucker, you know? It's like, that stinks. And then after that observation, he makes a pronouncement. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So, we know that a sign of repentance was fasting and praying, but what was fasting? How did they understand fasting? To the Pharisees, what type of fasting were they talking about? So we know that they would do it as a sign of repentance, but the reason why they were doing it is fasting many times in the Old Testament was a prayer for the Messiah to come, a kind of petitioning of heaven. Bring the Savior, bring the Messiah. We fast in anticipation that the Messiah is coming. We fast in anticipation that salvation is coming. We fast in anticipation that the kingdom of God is coming. So Jesus is saying the Messiah is here. There's no reason and no need for anybody to fast anymore while the Messiah is here. In fact, if I tell them to fast and if you continue to fast, what you're truly doing is you're saying the Messiah is not here. What you're saying is that even though the Messiah is right in front of you, 
I still need to petition heaven for him to come because I don't believe in this one that is here. And so Jesus says they do not need to fast while I'm here. It is what? A time of celebration. And so then after this, Jesus expounds on these points and he gives two parables. In verse 36 to 39, he says this. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Jesus is saying, simply, there is a new way of doing things that is here. And he tells the Pharisees through these parables, it's going to be very hard for you to accept what is happening. It's very hard for you to participate In verse 39, it says, And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. If you know about wine and the fermentation process, usually wine that is older and fermented longer tastes better than new wine that has been fermented in less amount of time. So if you get an aged wine, now I'm not into wine, so I I did my research. Unfortunately, God cursed me with taste buds that doesn't enjoy the taste of wine. Um, But from... What I understand is wine tastes better with age. It's pretty common. And so Jesus is saying, you've drinking the old wine and it was good. You've been part of the old covenant and it is good. You've tasted it and it is good. And now there's new wine here. But because you've tasted of this old wine, it's going to be hard for you to set aside the old wine in lieu of the new thing that is here. Because what you have tasted has been good for you. He says this by saying... And if you try to meld the old and the new, there's something that's going to happen. You can't take your old mindset and put it on top of the new one. Why? Because when that happens, they're both going to break. It's not going to work. And he says you can't take the, the new mindset and patch it. Because what happens? It will break both the old and the new. So what is Jesus telling them? He's essentially saying to the Pharisees, change is hard. Change is hard. If you've ever been a part of change in your life, then you know many times change is hard. This is a true statement. And as a church, there's something that we need to learn from this, from what Jesus is saying here. That changing our old habits to new ones is going to be hard. You know, a lot of times we get wrapped up in our habits. You know, we come to church, we do our thing, and then we go home and it becomes a habit. And as we're learning about what it means to be on mission, it's going to be hard for us to change. And many times we'll have the same responses that the Pharisees did. We'll start trying and doing new things that make us uncomfortable, and we're going to start objecting to that. Wait, what about this? This is the way that we're supposed to do it. This is the way that it's supposed to happen. And what Jesus tells the Pharisees, then he is telling the church now, change is hard. Changing our old mindsets to new ones is going to be hard. I read a book. It's called Managing Transitions. It's all about how you live through change in any period of your life or you lead people through periods of change in their life. 
And the first thing that the author says that what happens when you go through change in your life is in order to successfully have large amounts of change, you have to first go through a mourning process in your life. You have to mourn the old. Because in the old, you like it. It's familiar. It's easy. You've obviously been doing this for some reason uh, or another. But the mourning is looking inside yourself and saying, I am not going to be able to do it this way anymore. And there's going to be a period of loss. You know, even in addictions, even in the 12-step program, there is mourning. Because in an addiction, even though you know it's destructive, even though you know it's bad for you, You do it because you like it. There is a high, right? There is something that gives you what you want, whether it's an addiction to a drug or an addiction to entertainment or an addiction to a person. Even though you know that thing is destructive for you, even though you know it's bad, you like it. And the first step to getting out of that is mourning the fact that you will never experience this high again. Whenever you go through change in your life, if you're going to be successful and go through it in a healthy way, you have to mourn the old. You have to realize that there is going to be loss in your life. There is something that you liked, that you love, that is not going to be there anymore, and you have to be able to step away from it. And as we as a church start to live and to think like Jesus, we are going to experience change in our lives. And we can be like the Pharisees. We have drunk the old wine, the old ways. And we say, man, these are better than what we are going to step into. And we reject the mission of Jesus and we reject the teaching of Jesus. Or we can learn from Jesus and begin the process of change, which means that we need to enter into a process of mourning. I think the things that the church at large in America needs to mourn and the church right here, Zion, may need to mourn is a loss of comfort, a loss of familiarity, a loss of living for our happiness in our lives. You know, a lot of times what we do when we start to follow Jesus is we bring our mindsets with us, we bring our culture with us, we bring the American dream with us and so We transfer our unhealthy ambition in the workplace for an unhealthy ambition in the church. And we begin to seek titles or we begin to seek comfort or we begin to seek entertainment. All of these things play out in the American church today and how we do church. But when we are challenged by the mission of Jesus to live in a way that is not for ourselves, but for the glory of God and to see sinners come to repentance, then we have to go through a state of mourning that we are going to lose something. We are going to lose our comfort in a lot of ways. We are going to lose familiarity in a lot of ways. We are going to lose the American dream in many ways, in all ways. The pursuit of happiness. See, the thing is that if there's things to learn about this, is that we cannot practice what Jesus is teaching us unless we go through a period of change. And whether we change or not will be whether we are ready to accept the new wine or the new way of doing things. I think of the spiritual discipline of hospitality. We see that Levi is practicing in this scripture here. 
and inviting the other into your home. Many of us, until we mourn being a perfectionist, we will never be able to be people that live with the spiritual discipline of hospitality. You know, Heather and I always had a hard time inviting people over. There's a few reasons why uh, neither of us particularly enjoy cleaning the house a lot. And so we don't have to clean as long as nobody's coming over. Neither of us particularly enjoy cooking. And so if we don't have anybody over, we don't have to cook. And we realized that what was happening is that what we wanted to invite people into when we thought we were practicing hospitality is we thought we had to invite people into a front. We are not cookers and we are not always the cleanest. We have kids. I'm sorry. Get over it. <laughs> and so we thought, man, if we invite people into our home, we have to invite them into the Instagram picture of our home. Which is the neat, the clean, the perfect in that frame and then, you know, make believing everything outside of that frame is neat, clean, and perfect as well. When we know it's all just a disaster. And it was stopping us from having people over and practicing hospitality with others. And so we realized this and we had to go through a period of mourning. People will probably make fun of us, which they have, that we don't cook when they come over. People will probably think they're dirty, which they haven't told us, I'm sure. Some people have, though. (laughs) We've even received things for our house to be better hospitality people. Some of you in the room have given us those things so we can give better hospitality. Somebody is laughing in particular right now. (laughs) But we realize that Guess what? We are not perfect, and we cannot be perfect. There are some people that are blessed with the, good, the, the, the gift of cooking. We don't have that gift. Heather cooks because she cooks. It's not that she loves to cook. So I, when I meet people that love to cook, I'm just like, God bless you. That is amazing. We were at somebody's house yesterday, Rose and Mike. They both are amazing chefs. It is, it is an experience for us to sit under the greatness of other chefs. But we had to mourn the fact that people will not look at us as we are perfect. Like we are perfect. And so when I invite people over now, I just, I give them the rundown. I got two kids. We, we both work a lot all day. And so our, room, our house is going to be messy. Uh, you know, maybe we'll buy you a meal. Maybe we won't. So we got to figure that out. You got to let me know. If we cook, you're probably just going to get some pasta and cheese on it. And we're calling it a day at that. But what I can offer is quality time. Hang out. Let's talk. Let's pray. Let's be together. Let's, let's talk about life. Let's practice. And, and so Heather and I realized that there is a discipline of opening up our home that we try to constantly do on a weekly basis and invite people into our imperfections because I want them to know Christians don't have it all together. We are flawed. We make mistakes. My house is not always clean. I am not the perfect husband. I'm not the perfect parent. I'm not a cook. I'm not all of these things, but we try. And Jesus loves us in that and will come and recline at the table with us. Even if it's empty in my house sometimes. (laughs) 
We cannot practice being welcoming to the other on Sunday until we mourn that Sunday is not just for us. That Jesus said he is more excited over the one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous than over the 99 people that come every week and worship and sing and praise and say hallelujah and then run out and get away and don't talk to nobody and come on. I had to go through a period of mourning in my time and in my life. I grew up as a pastor's kid, so nobody had to mourn more than I did Sunday not being for us. I'm talking like two, three hours after church. My parents hanging out, inviting people over. People living with us. I mean, I got some wild stories of the the people that my parents would invite into the home. That realize that being on mission means that, yeah, I'm not just coming to the Bless Me Club on Sunday. I'm not coming to hear a good word and a good worship, but I'm actually coming. God, who is it that I can participate in sowing a gospel seed with this Sunday? Who can I meet? Who can I bring maybe one step closer? Who can I give an encouraging word to? Who can I meet? What do I have to mourn? Today And many times the church in America and the church here at Zion needs to mourn our comfort on Sundays so that we can be on mission. And we cannot practice being on mission until we have fully mourned that we are not here on earth for ourselves, but for God's mission and his kingdom. So much of the gospel wraps up in following Jesus as Levi did with everything. Now, when he left, he left his job. He tried to bring his friends with him and the other with him. But many times when we accept Jesus, we add him as a component to our already busy lives. And we have all these layers of things that are more important. And, you know, we all have the right things to say. No, God is more important. But if we look at our time, we look at our talent, we look at our treasures... And we look where we store them up. They're in other things than the kingdom of God. And in order to actually live for God, we have to mourn that we will not be living for ourselves any longer. That when I wake up in the morning, when I go to my job, when I parent, when I am a husband and I'm doing all these things, these aren't for myself anymore. But this is for the glory of God. I don't pastor a church so that I can have a platform. I don't become a good husband so that I can be happy. I don't, I'm not a good parent because it brings butterflies every five seconds. I do all of these things for the glory of God. And so my life is no longer for my pursuit of happiness and the dream that everybody has of fame, money, and all the things that come with it, power. And sometimes this is a long process of mourning, of saying, man, I will not live for these things anymore, but something has to fill that gap and Jesus gives us that thing he says I have come for a mission and I have commissioned you to join me in that mission to spread the good news to the poor to the sick 
to the lame, to the oppressed, to the broken. That my kingdom is everlasting, that I have come to restore, that I have come to heal, that I am Emmanuel, God with us. You know, if you want to simplify the gospel in its most basic form, you can just repeat the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. When somebody wants to know what is it that you believe, who is it that you serve, you can just say, Emmanuel, God with us. Now for us, a practical step forward will be this. You know, a lot of people, even in the last week as we preached, uh, last week and I challenged everybody, go sow a gospel seed, go tell somebody your testimony, talk to somebody about the gospel. A lot of people have challenges, man, I... I'm not that person that, you know, it's been hard. And even though you heard, you don't need to have all the wisdom. You don't need to have all the knowledge. You don't need to have all the power. You just need to sometimes just do it and believe God that he's in it, that he has the power, all of that. It still can be tough. Well, here's something that we learn from Levi that all of us can practice. That when we follow Jesus, what can we do? We can throw a feast. Gather your friends, gather the other, get all the best sinners that you have grown up with, that you have known. Bring them all into the room and then invite a leader to come share the gospel. This is what Levi has done. He has followed Jesus and then he said, Jesus, everybody needs to know about you. So I'm going to get everybody I know, all, all of the, the sinners and the... It's funny, the Pharisees call them sinners and... The gospel writer calls them other. And he said, we're going to get all of them. We're going to do that. And I want you to come and feast with us. And so if we have been, man, I'm having a hard time doing this on my own. So what you can do is this practical step. Is throw a party. Get a bunch of people in your house. And just request one of the leaders from the church show up. And share the gospel with them. And what can we do? Just allow the Holy Spirit to do His work from there. I've repeated this for the past few weeks and I'll say it again. It's not in our wisdom that people come to know Jesus. It's not about how good our argument is. It's not about how eloquent our speech is. It's not about any of that. The power of salvation is wrapped up in the message of the gospel. All we are tasked to do is to go and proclaim it and to make disciples after. We are not tasked with come conjuring up the power. We are not tasked with conjuring up the presence of God. We are not tasked with forcing people to receive the gospel. We are tasked with proclaiming it and helping them walk it out if they receive it. And so what we can do is we can gather people in a room, we can have a meal before them, and we can proclaim it. We can share what it is and allow the Holy Spirit to do the growth and the work after that. And then walk with the people that receive it after. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be like you. That we would be in the world and not of the world. Calling sinners to repentance and sowing the gospel to all that we know. Lord, many of us here need to mourn loss in our life of comfort, a loss of pursuit of happiness, a loss of familiarity, 
in order to pursue your mission. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would walk us through what that loss looks like. That we would mourn properly in order to drink the new wineskin and say that this is good. I'm going to invite you to stand right now. We're going to have two people that will pray with you in the back. And I want to make two calls today. Any point during worship, we'll be worshiping for the next 15, 20 minutes or so. And at any moment during that, if you would say, man, I I feel like Levi in that tax booth. And I'm ready to follow Jesus and I sense his call to me today. Then I invite you to come pray with us. We have two leaders that will be in the back, one on this side and one on that side that will pray with you. If you have prayer requests of any need and you say, man, I'm here today and I'm just broken and I need the good news, then we will pray with you. But I also pray that as we worship, that we would begin to think, God, how can I practically share the gospel with the other that you have placed in my life? Amen. Let's worship.